coming up on Venture Voice. I once said, if one more person tells me that Vanguard can't possibly work, won't have enough capital to fund its growth, won't have enough profitability to get to enable you to attract good managers. I said, if one more person says that, damn it, I'm just going to start it. And one more person did, and I did. You know, I like to take on the conventional opinion of the day. And I don't mind. I mean, I don't raise hell for the sake of raising hell. But if that's what it takes, that's what I do. This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm really excited to bring you this interview I did with John Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Group and the inventor of the Index Fund that I recorded back in 2006. Some quick context. In 2006, I was in my early 20s. Nobody knew what podcasting was. Uh, As far as I can tell, John Bogle had never been on a podcast. Yet, I was able to convince him to uh, actually come to New York. He took, I didn't realize this until we did the interview, he took Amtrak to New York from Philadelphia, where he's based, and then took the subway down to meet me in Soho to record this episode. And remember, I'm an obscure podcaster. Nobody even knew what podcasts were in 2006. John Bogle was listed in the Time 100 Most Powerful People, absolute game changer in the financial industry. Vanguard Group now manages trillions and trillions of dollars. So it's just unbelievable to me how humble John was compared to what he's accomplished in life. Sadly, John passed away in January 2019 at age 89. I thought it'd be important to revisit this episode as so many people now are reevaluating capitalism. This is a podcast about entrepreneurship. I love capitalism. John Bogle did too, but even back in 2006, he pointed out a lot of problems with capitalism, a lot of things that need fixing that we're still talking about today, and we've been talking about more this year than ever. So I thought it would be more important now than ever to revisit this interview. Also, just to take a step back, I think most of us probably take index funds for granted. We probably have it in our 401k We know there's a low-cost option to just buy the S&P 500 and not pay a lot of fees. It wasn't always that way. John Bogle invented that. It's such an amazing innovation. It feels foundational, like inventing AWS or cloud hosting. It is just a new, new category of something that helps out lots and lots of everyday investors. So these things that feel like air to us today, people within a lifetime invented them. So take a listen and hear how it all happened. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I'd heard in some other uh, speeches that you gave that you always are really conscious of influencing the youth and getting them to take a leadership role in the economy. And I was wondering, uh, just to go back to your college years and hear a little bit about what you did in college and what influenced your career from your college days. Sure. Well, first of all, I've always been a terrible idealist uh, or a wonderful idealist. In uh, December, I was at Princeton University working my way through with a nice scholarship. And I was trying to decide on what I I would write my senior thesis topic on. And this was in in the autumn of 1949, uh, just as uh, kind of midway through my junior year. And you have to decide pretty early. And I wanted to write my thesis on something no one had ever written on before. So there went Marx and there went Adam Smith and there went John Maynard Keynes because they'd been written on all over the place. And I happened to be reading and 
Princeton's Firestone Library, Fortune Magazine for December of 1949, and I stumbled on an article called Big Money in Boston, and it was about this industry of which I had never heard, the mutual fund industry, and it described the industry as tiny but contentious. And right there, without knowing anything about it, I never, I grew up in a very modest family circumstances. I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond, but the mutual fund industry, when it was described as tiny but contentious, struck me as a wonderful opportunity to write about something that almost nothing had been written about at that time. The whole industry was maybe $2 billion in assets. And so I wrote my thesis. And uh, as an idealist, which I am, and as a contrarian as I am, I saw a mutual fund industry that was going to have great growth. The fundamentals, diversification, management, service, that made a lot of sense. But I said the industry could maximize that growth by operating at lower cost, lower sales commissions, and operating in the most honest, efficient, and economical way possible, almost a direct quote from my thesis. I also said that the prime voice should be given to the mutual fund shareholder. They should have primacy over mutual fund managers. It's the job of mutual fund managers to serve to serve shareholders, both individual and institutional alike. And uh, I also cautioned that mutual funds had no ability to uh, beat the stock market averages over the long run. They could claim no superiority, is what I said in the thesis, to the stock market averages. All of that basically came true in my life. So you can ask, is just child, you know, idealistic prattling, or was it a design for a new enterprise? And I suppose it was both. So how do you go about coming up with this conclusion? Did you, was it purely academic or did you actually go out there and talk to mutual funds? How did you get this feeling over from Princeton? Oh, well, a good question. First, there was very little research available on mutual funds at that time. So I read the history of the uh, hearings, congressional hearings leading up to the Investment Company Act of 1940. I think it was thousands of pages. And it depicted an industry that had gone off the rails during 1929. Uh, an industry that had failed investors in 1929 and was then making a comeback in the mid to late 1940s. And it just seemed to me self-evident that if mutual funds could provide their services at a lower cost, they would appeal to more and more people. That's what they would have to do if they were going to live up to their promise. So it was a very idealistic conclusion, an idealism. When, when I talk to young people today, I tell them that you know I'm sure they are idealistic like all college juniors and seniors are, probably nearly all of them in this day and age and in my day and age. But I tell them that I'm even more idealistic now than I was then. Young people like to hear that. I think they're looking for idealism in this somewhat cynical world we have, a world where there's a lot of bad behavior in the financial area, a lot of bad behavior in the corporate area, a lot of bad behavior in the mutual fund era. So nobody took my advice, by the way, in the thesis. Sales charges were not cut. Management fees not only did not fall, they rose. And mutual funds kept trying to beat the market averages without success. How do you realize that these mutual funds couldn't? I mean, I'm sure that there are all these, there's this whole structure of people saying that they could beat the averages if they're just given the right resources and smart enough people. And you were, I'm sure, surrounded by plenty of smart people. What led you to believe that no matter how many smart people you get, you can't beat the market? Well, in uh, 1950, when I did most of the work on my thesis, I looked at the records of a number of funds. I didn't do a serious statistical study, but it was quite apparent that rare was the fund that beat the market. I mean, that was just the evidence, just cursory evidence, but clear evidence. And uh, that's the way it was. And, and uh, so without much statistical studying, it was a pretty obvious conclusion. Later on, in 1975, after I started Vanguard, I decided to systematically evaluate the records of all the mutual funds in business, all the, all the equity funds, all the common stock funds. 
and I compared them with the stock market index, S&P 500, Standard & Poor's 500 Stock Index. And it turned out over the previous 25 years, let's say roughly uh, 1950, actually it was 1945 to 1975, 30 years, they fell short. The average equity fund fell short of the S&P index in my statistical study, which I did by hand, did it all by myself, not that it was that difficult, lost to the market by about 1.5% a year. So if you had invested in the typical mutual fund 30 years earlier, these numbers are approximate, you would have ended up a million dollars would have grown to maybe 19 million. But if you'd simply invested in the market, because the power of compounding with that small difference, 1.5% a year, turned out that million in the index would be $26 million. It was almost a $7 million difference if you just owned the market. Later on, it became clear uh, that what I had to do a lot of work on then should have been obvious long earlier. I was a little, you know, people who are called a quick study. I fear I was kind of a slow study. Uh, but when you think about it, all investors own the stock market. So all investors divide up the stock market return. The stock market return is 10%. What do we investors as a group get? Why 10%? It's not complicated. Yet we don't get the 10% because that's the gross return in the market. That's, let's say, what the S&P 500 does. That's before you count intermediation costs, all those fund sales commissions and management fees and operating expenses and marketing expenses and all those advertising costs and all the brokers that are paid off with research from the funds. It all costs a lot of money. So you get the gross market return on average, but you receive the net market return after cost. Gross return minus cost equals the net return actually received by investors. It's not very complicated. It's self-evident. And I come to call that the relentless rules of humble arithmetic. So if you look at a 10% market return, just think about this for a minute. Well, let me use the example that is in my book, The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism. I use an assumed return of 8%. You're going to be amazed at this number. An assumed return of the stock market at 8%. That's which I think maybe a little higher than it will be. It'll be lower than the historical average, I'm quite sure. And if you invest $1,000 when you first come into the job market, say you're 20 years old, let's say you work for 45 years until you're 65, and then you've got 20 more years of life expectancy until you're 85, and it'll be longer by the time you get out there. But if you look at that $1,000 over 65 years, what's it worth at 8% compounded? It's worth about $140,000. Amazing. That's what I call the magic of compounding returns. Einstein called compound interest the greatest mathematical miracle of all times, and in a lot of ways he was right. So $1,000 grows to $145,000 if you own the market. Now let's assume that you own a mutual fund investing in that. And the mutual fund costs average about 2.5% a year. So your gross return is 8, your costs are 2.5, your net return is 5.5. A pretty big hunk comes out of that. 5.5% over that 65-year period turns out to be worth about $30,000. What we have here is the magic of compounding returns overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed by the tyranny of compounding costs. Think about it. If you own the market, you have 140000 If you own the market through a mutual fund, you have 30000 And that means the market system has consumed $110,000 of the return that was there for the taking because you can own the market through an index fund at almost zero cost. So put it another way, the investor in this example put up 100% of the capital, took 100% of the risk, and ended up getting 21% of the return. Shocking. And the financial system 
which put up 0% of the capital and took 0% of the risk, got 79% of the return. That's simply unacceptable. Investors that know that are never going to look at their investing the same way again. Well, it sounds like an amazing insight. And just going back, how did you ever execute on all this when you were just graduating from college and you had a thesis that basically said to all the power players who could one day give you employment and everything else that they got this tyranny of uh, fees and are charging way too much and not delivering our value for their investors. Well, I first of all, I didn't do what I should have done, and that is look at compound interest tables and make some obvious conclusions. You know, I looked at mutual funds for 10 years, and there was a certain lag in the 10-year record of the market, but I never took it to that next step of going over an investment lifetime. And investment lifetime was shorter than anyway. People didn't start when they were 20. So I looked at it very differently, and of course, circumstances changed. Horizons, I mean, people start investing longer, they live longer. And so when you actually look at the mathematics, these relentless rules of humble arithmetic, you get a remarkable insight. So I didn't have what we might call a strong form of that thesis, or the strong form of that formulation in my senior thesis. I certainly criticized the industry, and I sent a copy of it to Mr. Walter Morgan, one of the industry pioneers who founded the Wellington Fund in 1928. And he had gone, as I had gone to Princeton University, he kind of took an interest in me, took a shine to me, became kind of my mentor and hired me at Wellington Management Company. And by the time I was about 36, I'd become the head of Wellington Management Company. And we had always focused on low cost. Uh, we only had one fund when I went there at the beginning. And by the time uh, 1966 came along, we probably had four or five mutual funds, but they were very conservative funds. And that was the go-go era beginning in 1964 to roughly 1968, followed by another speculative area that didn't end until 1972. And I got hooked by a new era where managers were going to be more aggressive. Uh, they were going to pay less attention to the value of the company than the price of the stock. All those things that went on there. And I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. If you want to say I was stupid, I would say you understate the problem. I refused to listen to the lessons of history that I was perfectly well aware of. I was too opportunistic. I looked too much at mutual funds as being a giant marketing business, which it is today, even worse. And all I was doing right in that period was uh, basically believing that conservative funds were the way and that our keep the Wellington cost very, very low, which they always been quite low, but sucked in by the go-go era and all the madness of the crowds, extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds of the day. I did a merger of Wellington with a go-go group, probably as dumb a thing as any individual has ever done. And it worked very well as the go-go era went on. And when it all fell apart in 1973-74, uh, all our funds plummeted in value, even more than the market. And my merger partners, who were the ones actually running the funds, although I was the chief executive of the company, banded together and fired me. So I was out of work. So that must have been quite a blow. After. It was awful. I mean, I cried. Uh, why wouldn't you? Uh, but I knew that I'd made a terrible mistake and ended up paying a terrible price, but also understood the conclusion, who says life isn't fair? I mean, if you make a terrible error, why shouldn't you pay a terrible price? I think you should. And I paid it. Out of that came the opportunity to create a new kind of mutual fund company that was just as my thesis suggested all those years earlier was run of the shareholder, by the shareholder, and for the shareholder. And in Vanguard, we created a company 
that would be owned by the mutual fund shareholders, not by a separate group of owners, which is the way this industry exists today. That would give us the opportunity to be the low-cost provider in the business. And uh, we actually ended up with a fight with the officers of Wellington Management Company in which we basically mutualized those funds and let my former adversaries run some of them. We ran the rest and uh, started the first index fund, bought by the stock market and hold it forever fund called, we call it very proudly in 1976, First Index Investment Trust. It was the first index fund the world had ever known. Paul Samuels compared the creation of that index fund to the equivalent of the creation of the wheel and the alphabet. I have to confess, I don't think it's <laughs> that remarkable, but there you go. Who am I to argue with a Nobel laureate uh, and a famous economist, world-famous economist, and a brilliant, brilliant man. So he had the world's first index fund. And about at that point, we started to grow once we created Vanguard. We inherited through the taking over of the Wellington funds uh, at the bottom of the market, the stock market bottom in September of uh, 1974, total assets of all the funds put together. There were about seven or eight of them. Uh, we're about $1.4 billion. And today, the index fund is the largest mutual fund in the world. And Vanguard's assets are getting, are over $900 billion, $900 billion on the way to $1 trillion compared to that $1 billion start. Thousand times as great almost. So it worked well. And out of that, I, I, I got a wonderful lesson. And that is, uh, despite the fact I was angry and embarrassed about my failures, and nobody likes to get fired. I didn't like that either. I came up with a little rule, which I think is a good rule for everybody. And the way I put it is, I left my old job exactly the same way I took on my new job, fired with enthusiasm. <laughs> and I was talking to a group of 125 or 150 CEOs a few weeks ago. And I said, to me, you've learned what you need to learn if you're trying to run companies or do anything else. And that is, however you leave your old job, be sure you take the new one fired with enthusiasm. And I think it's a good rule for all of us. I think that's just an amazing uh, comeback story you have there. And great to hear you kind of rediscovered your idealism there. Yeah. You know, was there like one moment you remember where after you were fired and in the pits, it was there like one spark that occurred to you? Like, let me start this again and let me go back to these old principles. Or did it just happen slowly? Yeah, I don't remember any one particular moment. I did not think it would be possible to basically mutualize the uh, Wellington funds, the then Wellington funds, which are now all Vanguard funds. We changed their names. And so I looked around for other jobs in the business. I've always been, uh, I fear, uh, very much a sermonizer. My assistants, the young men that have worked for me over the years, once gave me a clerical collar because I was known as St. Jack. And I'm still known as St. Jack, I think mostly cynically. And uh, you know, I can assure you that I am no saint. If you don't believe that, ask my wife. But uh, I am no saint, but I always have had this desire to build a better world, to build the world anew, as I say, in, in the battle for the soul of capitalism, to do what's right for the people who have entrusted their money to us, putting the shareholder first, putting, if you will, service to others before service to self. And it works because it can't not work, because as long as you know the relentless rule of humble arithmetic, gross return minus cost equals net return, and are the low-cost provider. In an industry where other people don't much care about being the low-cost, people aren't striving to be low-cost providers. They actually, in the mutual fund business, in the heart of hearts of our peers and rivals, they are basically striving to be the high-cost producer because the more they take, the more wealthier the management company is. Alas, if you understand my rule, and I'm sure you do, the more the managers take, 
the less the shareholders make. There's no way around that for mutual funds as a group. My beliefs, which have never been challenged by anybody, it can't be challenged. It's arithmetic. I have not made me particularly popular in the business. You know, I feel sort of badly, I guess. But on the other hand, if you're trying to do what's right, I'm not sure that will always make you popular. In the meanwhile, this small industry that I joined in 1951 is now an $8 trillion business, and it's owned almost overwhelmingly by giant financial conglomerates. You know, it might be Citibank, it might be Deutsche Bank, it might be Martian McLennan, it might be Sun Life of Canada, it might be Bank of America. All these giant financial conglomerates basically control the mutual fund industry. And believe me, they are in business to earn a return on their capital. They are not in business to earn a return on your capital as a mutual fund investor. Their objectives are totally the opposite of what Vanguard's objectives are. So no wonder our market share keeps growing and growing. It's grown for 25 years in a row, and I don't know what's going to keep it from growing further. Uh, So a lot of people have the perception that the idealists are the ones who kind of never end up really making the impact on the world. They don't know how to do what it takes. What do you think made you not only kind of have this insight, but made you able to implement this in an effective way? First, the Lord has created few people with a greater feeling of determination than I have. I asked my kids once, what word would they use to describe me? I asked them separately. Every one of them said the same thing, determined. Second, while I am not an intellect, be very clear on that, I have a very intellectual turn of mind, which means when you see something, this doesn't require brilliance, it requires curiosity. And you say, why does that happen? How did that happen? Is there a better way to do it? That kind of an approach to life. Third, very importantly, contrarian. I once said, if one more person tells me that Vanguard can't possibly work, won't have enough capital to fund its growth, won't have enough profitability to get to enable you to attract good managers. So if one more person says that, damn it, I'm just going to start it. And one more person did, and I did. You know, I like to take on the conventional opinion of the day. And I don't mind. I mean, I don't raise hell for the sake of raising hell. But if that's what it takes, that's what I do. And uh, I've been on a very consistent track, very, very steady in my views, unflinching in my ability to, in my willingness to express them. And I've written five books now, all very, very well received. They sold like, I think, 550,000 copies. It's a lot of books. And they're good books. Uh, You know, Warren Buffett calls them honest. That's a good thing to put on your cover. Just Warren Buffett is nice enough, but say, you know, it's nice to have an honest book about how to invest. Tell the truth. From I'm not trying to sell a particular fund. I'm trying to sell an idea. Invest for the long term. Diversify to the maximum possible extent. Get all the costs it's physically possible to do out of the equation simply because of those relentless rules of humble arithmetic. It's very simple stuff. Somebody once said, I think they were not being nice, but I took it as a compliment. All this poor guy Bogle has going for him is an uncanny ability to recognize the obvious. And, you know, it would seem like a really a paradoxical statement, number one, because the obvious is what anybody can recognize. So how could it take an uncanny ability to recognize? But I think it does. I think a lot of people don't think critically enough, don't walk around the problem from all sides, don't argue with themselves. I've never had anyone argue with me like I argue with myself about principles, policies, and outcomes. So, you know, that's kind of all of a piece. You know, someone who marches to his own drummer, clearly, someone who's very determined, very competitive, very thoughtful, and very questioning. You know, you'd think those were sort of ordinary characteristics. It turns out they were the right characteristics for doing what I've done. And I have no trouble at all 
saying my career at Wellington and then at Vanguard, in both cases, call on every single asset I have, and I do have some assets, might as well confess it, but ignored every single liability I had. And I have lots of them too. But they didn't come into play in what I've been trying to do, and the assets were demanded. So it's just great, great luck. A lot of lucky breaks. Uh, Having Mr. Morgan as a mentor, doing the stupid merger, getting fired, all turned out to be breaks because of those. And opening the book at Princeton, opening Fortune magazine at Princeton. You know, the reality is that if I hadn't opened that book in December of 1949, page 116, and found that article, I wouldn't have written about the mutual fund industry. I wouldn't have been in the mutual fund industry, and there would be no Vanguard today. Now, the whole business model is predicated on keeping those costs low. What are your uh, tips to entrepreneurs on how to keep costs low when building a business? Well, the first thing that happens is you have to realize that about half of the costs, a little bit less than half maybe, that a mutual fund incurs are profits to its managers. Profit margin in this business is pretty close to 50%. So if you eliminate that, which the Vanguard structure does, it basically rebates that profit to the shareholders. You all of a sudden have cost 50% below the competitors. So to give you a kind of a homely example, if the average cost is, say, 1%, you're all the way down at 0.50 or maybe 0.60 simply by getting the entrepreneurial profit out of the equation. A good start. The rest of it is aggressive cost control, doing away with things like aggressive marketing. Think for me, uh, marketing is a huge cost for this business. We do very little of it. We did even less of it than when, when I was running Vanguard. What does marketing do? A wise man once observed, the only people that need to do advertising are those who have inferior products. If you build a better mousetrap, I've said this all through Vanguard's history, the world, as Ralph Waldo Emerson told us, will indeed beat a path to your door. And uh, the world will come to us. So if we're going to be a trillion-dollar company, maybe huge marketing expenditures would get us there by, let me say, 1998. So we're going to get there by 2006. What's the difference? What's the point of speeding up that growth rate to spend a lot of money pulling people in, and then you end up advertising your hottest funds because that's what pulls the most people in. And of course, they all lose money in the long run. So getting marketing way down in the equation. And then operating efficiently, using a lot of technology to cut costs, inspiring a workforce with the company's values, the idea of doing what's right for the shareholder, treating people fairly, treating the shareholders fairly. It's a sort of a golden rule kind of thing. doesn't require a genius to say that a good way to handle a workforce or a client is to do unto others what you would like to have people do unto you. That rule's been around a long time, probably even before the Bible, and certainly before the Bible. So that's just one more evidence of common sense, so a good workforce. And then things like getting rid of all the just insanely wasteful costs that companies have. We would never have an executive jet. We don't fly first class. We don't have an executive dining room. I'd be embarrassed to walk into an executive dining room at Vanguard. We all eat in the same galley, cafeteria kind of place every day. And, we, you know, the, the guys like me make more money than the people who are doing the humble jobs. And I guess that's as fair as it ever is. But in terms of all the perquisites, the reserved parking spaces, no, we have a lot of no's about what we'll spend money on. And, uh, you know, keeping printing down and don't have elaborate annual reports don't do a lot of advertising and don't do television and don't advertise your hot performing funds. And that enables us to get, using my example, if you want to use 1% for the industry, including money market funds and bond funds, which are cheaper, and stock funds, which are more expensive, and we get down to, say, 55 or 60.60 of 1%, the way we get down to less than 0.25 of 1%, less than a quarter of 1%, 
that other 25 or 35 so-called basis points, 0.35 or 25 of 1%, heavily, don't waste a lot of money on marketing. Don't waste your shareholders' money on bringing in new shareholders. Why would anybody want you to do that? They're perfectly happy with the same number we had. And then just common sense ways to save operational costs. We do pay very well. There's no question about this. But when, you have, when you're operating at such a low cost, you can't afford to underpay people. So we have a very competitive, probably more competitive than most of our competitors, uh, compensation scheme. So I want to talk about your book, Battle for the Soul of Capitalism. But before I do, I heard you mention um, values in a company. And I think it's a really fascinating thing a lot of people see now. I mean, people know that people can have values, but you see a lot of companies and especially big companies that have grown larger. People start to question, what are these companies? Can they really have values? So how do you grow a company from a small size to a larger size and have that have actual values in that company? Well, that's not easy. Uh, but let me even take a step before that. And that is, as a, a wonderful book published by Harvard University Press and by some Harvard Business School professors that describes Vanguard as a company, one of the very, very few companies that has had these values since its inception. So the first thing is, it's a lot easier to build a company with those values from ground zero than it is to convert a company to those values when it's already large. Now, of course, we've grown. We started out, I started Vanguard with, uh, including me, 28 crew members. We don't use the word employees. I don't like that word. I think it suggests sort of a demeaning sort of kind of relationship. And so we use crew members because Vanguard, the name comes out of HMS Vanguard, uh, flagship of Lord Nelson at the Great Battle of the Nile, greatest naval battle of the last millennium, according to the New York Times. And uh, so we have this, these nautical phrases that we use a lot. Uh, stay the course, press on regardless. You know, we have the galley instead of the cafeteria, all those kind of things. And uh, very much, you know, I love the nautical kind of metaphors. As you get bigger, it's obviously harder to maintain those values. I mean, I happen to believe that a great part of it is a very hands-on walking around management style. And even when we got to a thousand people, crew members at Vanguard, probably in about 1985, you know, we're in 10, 11 years old. I still had the reputation for knowing everybody's name. I did not know everybody's name, but I, you know, I like to smile to people. I like to say hello. I don't let them get past me without saying hi. I don't like people are looking down, so I make them look up. And if they're having a bad day, we'll just share that together. And trying to be visible and just like a decent human being with the people who are doing the most humble level of work at Vanguard, even including the people who are literally sweeping the halls all the way up to, well, when, I, when we get to the executives, and I don't really have the same feeling about that. I mean, I'm a guy that, that really mostly thinks about all the hard work that has to be done in a company by people that do neither more nor less and get out of bed in the morning and come to work with enthusiasm and dedication and loyalty and do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. That is how you build a company with veterans. And they stay there. We have 500 people that have been over there in, at Vanguard longer than 15 years. And I don't know how many more people we had 15 years ago, but or the, from 15 years from the start, which would be 1980. I'm sorry, 1990. But they really like the system. It's hard to do. What happens when you get bigger? We now have about 11,000 crew members, maybe 12,000. Uh, and so that's 28 people, 1,000 people, say, a decade later. And now 20 years after that, 12,000 people. It is not easy to do. So my view is, and I don't run the company anymore, I can't speak for anybody else, 
is just fight bureaucracy. I have a saying a lot of our crew members have posted at their little working places, and it says, for God's sake, let's always keep Vanguard a place where judgment has at least a fighting chance to triumph over process. That's an important thing. You know, human beings, I, I think it's very important for companies as a kind of at the one extreme, a company that trusts those who work there or those that get up and run the company every day and make sure it works from the mailroom on up, down, and sideways. And then there's a, another, the other extreme, count everything. You know, get time clocks and see how many minutes or seconds people are spending on the phone. Are they spending too much time? Are they spending not enough time? How long it takes to process this and that? I'm a truster rather than a counter, but fully recognizing that some counting has to be taking place. I mean, you can't ignore, alas, compensation salary schedules. And uh, we have a partnership plan, which everybody on the Vanguard payroll shares in the earnings we create for our shareholders on the basis of low cost. And we calculate it every year. And those earnings have gone up and up and up and up and up for, I guess, pretty much uh, ever since we started. And so everybody gets a nice bonus from that. Everybody, not just the big shots, which I think is very, very important. So make them part of the search for low costs. Make sure they don't think that uh, low costs are being you know, weighing down on the compensation they have, that they're basically being having on their back, if you will, and the need to keep costs low, profiting if we keep costs low. It's just pretty much elementary human relations that takes no particular skill, certainly takes kind of attitude, doesn't take manuals. I've often said at Vanguard, we really only need one rule, do what's right, and if you're not sure, ask your boss. And, uh, you know, I always have a lot more than that. You know, you've got equal employment and all those kind of things today. So it's harder to run a company today than it was in those early years. I had the first one to admit that or to acknowledge it. So now things have changed quite a bit. And you talk on your book, and I think this is kind of particularly relevant in entrepreneurship. The companies are started by entrepreneurs. They're controlled by the owners. But a lot of the larger, especially public companies lately, the owners have kind of lost control of these companies or given up control and the managers have taken over. Can you tell me how that happened and what their ramifications are? Uh, yeah, certainly. And it's actually, it's a wonderful question because if your listeners have heard about the ideas in my thesis, my senior thesis at Princeton, funds should be run for their shareholder owners rather than for their managers. You could say this book, 55 years later, is simply an extension of what I said back then. I think it's better written. I think it's more sophisticated in a good sense. I think it's more clearly reasoned. But the theme of the book is a wonderful system of capitalism in which the rewards went to the owners, the people that put up the capital and took the risk, got the, essentially most of the rewards from capitalism for years and years. And uh, in the last 15 or 20 years, it's gradually turned out to be, it's been described as a pathological mutation. Owner's capitalism has turned into manager's capitalism, where the managers are at the top of the food chain. And they're taking far more than their fair share of rewards. Whether you're talking corporate America, and you see that in CEO salaries, which are outrageous in financial America and in mutual fund America. And that's really what the book is about. What went wrong in corporate America? What went wrong in investment America? What went wrong in mutual fund America? Those are the three sections. And then why it went wrong and how to fix it in each case. So it's a very idealistic book whose roots go back. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier that I've been pretty consistent. You could say uh, often wrong, but never in doubt if you want to, but, but certainly consistent in believing the shareholders should be empowered. What's happened in, in America is uh, 
there aren't very many shareholders left. We used to have, in 1950, half a century ago, roughly, 91% of all the stock in America was owned by individual investors and 9% by financial institutions. Now, that 9% owned by financial institutions, largely pension funds and mutual funds, has grown from 9% to 33%, and the amount owned by individuals has gone from 9% to 63%, 63%, and the individual share has gone from 91% to about 37%. So the institutions are in the driver's seat, but they're not owners in the sense we look at it. And there are two important issues here, very important issues. First, they're not owners because they're holding stock representing the investments of others. Trustees of pension plans don't own that stock. They should be running it for the pension plan beneficiaries. And the mutual fund side, those managers don't own the stock. They should be running it, those investments, for the benefit of their mutual fund shareholders. And that is not happening in either case. They put their own interest for the interest of their shareholders. Even worse, even if you consider them owners, we don't have a society in which people own stock. We have a society in which people rent stock. We've gone from an own a stock business in the mutual fund business and throughout investment America to a rent a stock business. When I came into this business, the typical um, institutional investor, typical mutual fund, if you will, held stock for about an average stock in the average fund was held for six years. Portfolio turnover rate was about 16%. Now the average stock is held for one year. Portfolio turnover is going from 16% to 100% a year. Well, look, if you're renting a stock, you don't care about the rights and responsibilities of ownership. And they don't. They pay very little attention to what's going on in corporate America, which opens the door for all that abuse. And as a result, uh, corporate managers get paid far too much. And mutual fund managers, by ignoring the interests of their own shareholders, are also taking too much. You know, it's really like when you think about it, if you think about gross return minus cost equals net return, it's like the casino. You know, if we all go into a casino and stay there and there's no croupier, it's a zero-sum game, right? If there's a croupier, it's a loser's game. In the stock market, beating the market, the market may do something. So the market should have a positive slope. It creates returns over time. But beating the market before cost is a zero-sum game and after cost is a loser's game. Investing is a loser's game. It has to be as long as you realize the relentless rules of humble arithmetic. So now it's battle for the soul of capitalism. What's the battlefield? Is this a battle that can be fought through capitalism, through the free market? Does this require government intervention? What are kind of the mechanisms you see for winning this battle? Yeah, those are, it's a very, very good question. And I basically say that there are two approaches we have to take. First, given the fact that retirement savings are the backbone of our system and the retirement system in pension funds and mutual funds is not operating in the interest of investors, they're going to have bad retirements, that all the money that's pulled out of the system is going to mean that our retirement savings, which is the backbone of our economy, are going to fail to live up to what people expect, simply because of the heavy layer of cost. I estimate them at about $400 billion a year, meaning the investors lose to the financial markets by $400 billion a year. That's a trillion dollars plus every three years, a trillion dollars taken away from investors every three. This is not hyperbole. This is just facts. Given the retirement system is failing, I call for the appointment of a federal Blue Ribbon Federal Commission to look into getting the retirement system straightened out. You know, we have too many options. There should be a unified tax-deferred retirement savings system coordinated with a social security system. Whether or not it has private accounts, I leave to wiser heads. Some merit, some demerit to that idea, but it, it can be a good idea. Then also 
creating a federal standard of fiduciary duty for pension trustees and mutual fund managers. Your job is to put the shareholders first, is what I want the government to say. Set out standards for what the observance of that fiduciary duty is. It does not exist today. So we need that. And that's what we'll call the regulatory solution or the legal solution. I don't see any reason, and I quote Alexander Hamilton, uh, no communist on this, that when the, the system isn't working, if there's no other way to make it work, by golly, you better have the government intervene. This is not un-Hamiltonian. And Adam Smith will tell you the same thing. He, neither of them like government intervention, but if that's the only way that appears to be able to fix this, you know, the world changes, standards change, and we just lost our bearings. So that's what we'll call regulatory fiat, if you will. However, you almost need none of that if investors will just look after their own self-interest. No investor is stuck or required to pay 2.5% a year for the mutual funds that he or she owns. They can buy market index funds, which are give you guarantee of the market return minus a tiny cost, meaning that over your lifetime, you'll outpace about 95% of all your neighbors. That ain't bad. It's there for the taking. But investors have to wake up. They have to wake up and focus on the long term. They have to focus on funds that are very low cost and very and hold stock for a long time. Uh, they have to buy funds that are run in their interest rather than the manager's interest. That's going to be a big educational job. And I talk about many ways to do that, uh, more education. But each minute that goes by, investors are losing to the system by these staggering amounts of money. So what we really have to have is to we have to wake up investors and some combination of government action, like improving the retirement system, tax deferral, integrating tax deferral, and a much simpler retirement system, federal standard of fiduciary duty, that will probably have to come along. But in the meanwhile, investors are not, you know, there's not a law that requires them to participate. They can buy all market, all stock market, all bond market and index funds and capture the market return. This is not an excessive claim. They only do it with no magic. They just take the smallest amount of cost out of there. So I have a little um, a colloquy in the book between me and a very young writer named, named Justin Fox for Fortune magazine. And he says, are you optimistic? This is all going to happen. And I said, no, Justin, I'm not optimistic. I'm absolutely certain. And he says, how can you be so certain? To which I reply, Justin, investors may ignore their own economic interest for the rest of my aging life. And Justin, they may even ignore their own economic interest for the rest of your young life. But I guarantee you that investors will not ignore their own economic interest forever. And I do guarantee that. So a wake-up call for investors and a combination of that and some modest government inter intervention would get us much closer to the ideal system in which investors get a fair shake. This is not a complicated issue. American investors are not getting their fair shake of market return because we have a very expensive system, a system focused on the folly of short-term speculation rather than the wisdom of long-term investing, a system that, that operates as if costs do not matter when costs are everything. So it seems very simple to me. There aren't a lot of people singing out of this particular hymn book, but it's kind of fun to be the only one that's doing it. <laughs> So what I wonder, will anyone join the party? I mean, what I really like about Vanguard is that you saw a problem in the mutual fund industry that was bad for investors and you were able to make money, you were able to build a business by addressing that problem, by addressing this corrupt industry. And now you're kind of pointing out that not only that industry, but kind of much larger corruption or um, lack of focus out there 
are there entrepreneurial opportunities to address this problem for young or old entrepreneurs who want to start a new venture? Well, it's an interesting, it's a wonderful question. It's a very good one. And that is an entrepreneur in business to provide a public service, which is after all, you know, not Benjamin Franklin supposed to be our first entrepreneur. He didn't patent anything. His idea, the Franklin stove, the fire insurance company, fire companies, bucket brigades of those days, bifocals, the works. Franklin didn't want a reward for them. He thought he'd gotten a lot of advantages from what other people had created the public, and that was good enough for him, and that's good enough for me. And so it's the entrepreneurial spirit of success, not for the sake of the fruits of success, but for the sake of having a good fight and competing and winning. That entrepreneurial spirit, I'm sorry to say, is not quite as prevalent as the other entrepreneurial spirit, which is how much money can I make? And that comes out of somebody's pocket, particularly in this sort of closed system that we call the investment business, because it is a closed system. The investment business is a business that takes. We don't make anything for anybody. The markets deliver whatever returns they're generous enough to bestow on us. So you can't add value in this business. You can for your own set of clients, but not all firms can do that. The majority will fail to do that, will, not may. So the uh, entrepreneurial ventures in which the idea is to make rather than take, you know, a new product, a new service, a new internet website, whatever it might be, is uh, something that's making, you know, creating a consumer advantage and uh, giving the consumer maybe at much lower cost a much better way to shop and to order or to select or to examine or compare. You know, if someone wants to, there's some new product, let's call it the iPod. Uh, That seems to be an unbelievably good system and uh, at a very low cost relative to what's in there. And uh, that's a making thing, a new product that, you know, makes a better world for consumers. But we're a taking business in the investment business. So there isn't going to be a big line of people standing out there saying, I want to convert my mutual fund company to the Vanguard mode because my profits will stop rolling in the door. And they will. So it's going to require consumers to demand people operate that way and mutual fund directors to demand that their managers operate that way. There's nothing that requires, there's a very interesting point about the fund business, and that is each fund has its own board of directors, largely independent of the manager, and yet the manager controls those directors, dominates and controls them. So mutual fund directors are pretty useless appendages. They don't need to be. If they stand up and say, look, we're going to mutualize this place, we're going to be like Vanguard. And, you know, you've been feeding at the trough, you say to the manager, you've been feeding at the trough for 30 years here. You're all rich. We're going to gradually wean you off that income. We're going to pay you directly by the mutual funds, which means you can all get a raise, but the profitability is going to cease. Now, that's going to be painful for these financial conglomerates who spent billions of dollars to buy into this business, and they're not going to get that money back. I don't know what to say about that. They take a risk. Uh, they know perfectly well that the law says a contract, a mutual fund contract, can be canceled in thirty to, in sixty days. So if an, if if investors demand it, if mutual fund shareholders demand it, change will come. But they're a pretty passive lot, and I do salute the Securities and Exchange Commission for trying to get more independence into that board of directors. They're trying to make sure that at least seventy five percent of the directors are independent of the manager. They're trying to make sure that the chairman of the board of the funds is not also the chairman of the board of the management company. Well, imagine that in a fee negotiation. I'm the chairman of the board of the funds. I'm the chairman of the board of the management company. And I say as chairman of the management company, I'd like to start a new fund with a 1.5% fee. And as the chairman of the board of the funds, I say, is that enough? As Warren Buffett says, negotiating with oneself seldom produces a barroom brawl. And we don't have very many barroom brawls in this industry. 
So this industry is going to have, to use a somewhat uh, strong metaphor, going to be have to be dragged kicking and screaming into a new world for investors in which the mutual fund shareholder gets a fair shake. Sounds like a tough job. It's a tough job. And, you know, th- th- those people will say it'll never happen. I don't have an intelligent comment about that. But if, if I was persuaded it would never happen, would I start doing things differently? Not at all. I'd do them even stronger. Uh, you know, somebody has to stand up and be counted in this life. And it would involve quite a change in the industry in the benefit of investors rather than the benefit of the managers. And that same trade-off in my thesis and in the thesis of the book, 55 years later, owner's capitalism versus manager's capitalism. And the owners have to get their fair shake because they own. Uh, If companies shouldn't be run for their owners, for whom should they be run? I don't know the answer to that. That's not the, the If the answer isn't run companies for their owners, that's the way capitalism, good capitalism always was. And it's the way uh, bad capitalism is today. So my final question, if idealistic entrepreneurs out there who want to take up a charge to go against what's going on right now in the finance industry or in any other industry, and they've kind of got this path ahead of them, like you said, it's not going to be fun. It's going against the grain, going against um, kind of popular belief. What's your advice to them? Well, first, if I may take the liberty of correcting you, nobody in this business had more fun than I have. Nobody. It's fun to take on the establishment. It's fun to have some determined ideas and see them implemented. There's nothing like the satisfaction of a good fight well won. I mean, I, there's a lot of fun. I mean, there are an awful lot of billionaires in the industry in which I find myself. Mr. Johnson up at Fidelity is supposed to be worth $25 billion for running his mutual fund management company. I don't know how many decimal points you have to knock off that before you get to point poor old Bogle. Not poor old Bogle. Poor Bogle. Uh, Rich Bogle, by any standard except the standard of this lunatic industry in which I find myself. I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm a joke to the entrepreneurs that came into this business because they have so much more money than I will ever dream of having. But I have enough. And there's there's a wonderful story about, I believe it's Kurt Vonnegut. And he's at a party on, I think, Nantucket. And uh, somebody, one of the guests comes up to him and says, see that guy over there? He's a hedge fund manager. And he made more money today than you have made on all your books over your entire writing career. And Kurt Vonnegut looks at the guy and says, yes, but I have something he will never have. Enough. (laughs) Good story. So, you know, entrepreneurship is about the joy of creating. It's what Schumpeter tells us, and he's right. The joy of success for its own sake. The joy of changing the world a little bit for the better. The joy of having investors get their fair share of market returns. And that is to say, a more comfortable retirement, you know, and in the mutual fund system, uh, the difference between a comfortable retirement, a very uncomfortable one, is ignoring cost. I told you at the beginning those compound interest numbers, and uh, be very hard to to uh, say that you know it has been a difficult task, of course, but one filled with joy. The joy of creating is in a joy like and, and putting something in there that, you know, I suppose it's fair to say that if I hadn't done it, it probably still wouldn't have been done. Because there's no economic incentive to create another Vanguard. You know, I'm fond of saying the mutual fund industry didn't need Vanguard. And no industry needs Vanguard. But all industries need a Vanguard. That is to say, a company that says, I see what you're doing. I understand what you're doing. I'm going to do it differently. And may the best ideas win. May whoever provides the best returns, the lowest cost, and the best service to shareholders will win the game. And 
we are winning the game a little bit every year, year after year and year. So uh, entrepreneurs enjoy the spirit, enjoy the determination, enjoy the fight. Nothing like a good fight, really. And I love them. Got the math on your side. It's not quite a fair fight. I got too many advantages. But it's all about the joy of creation, I think, and the joy of competition and the joy of seeing you uh, putting your ideas into practice. And that's, to me, what entrepreneurship is all about. And that's what it was all about to Benjamin Franklin, to improve the lot of society, or in my case, to improve the lot of investors as a group. It doesn't just relate to Vanguard investors. So I have no apologies for it at all. If people can only understand what joy there is to changing the establishment, uh, the established rule of the world, as I say in the book, to build the world anew. Listening to that interview again with John Bogle almost gives me goosebumps. It reminds me why I became an entrepreneur, the idealism, the desire to change the world. Even in his 70s, John was more idealistic than most of us were in our 20s. It shows that power of business that you really can change the world through creating. I know it's been repeated so much, so many people have gotten cynical about it, but just think of the impact inventing index funds had on millions and millions of middle-class retirements. It's pretty wild. Hearing John talk about how disconnected managements become from ownership makes me proud for growing my own company, Muckrack, and the Shorty Awards without outside investing, and I can see firsthand all the decisions we make for the long term that I don't think a professional manager would make if they didn't have a big ownership stake in the company they were running. And that long-term thinking really has a big impact for both our employees and our customers. So any way we can revise capitalism to make it more about ownership and long-term thinking would be good for everybody. For anyone new, this podcast was probably the first podcast about entrepreneurship. It started in 2005. I took a 10-year hiatus while building my own businesses. Now it's back with new interviews, starting with Mark Cuban from about a month ago. I've got a lot of great new interviews lined up. Help spread the word. Please tweet about it, email your friends. You can always reach me on social media if you want to tag me. I'm just at Gregory on both Twitter and Instagram. That's right. I signed up so early because I interviewed so many founders of these social media platforms that I just got my first name, at Gregory. And please, please, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. I just got a new review from Dave JFK. He wrote, Insightful Conversations with Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Greg's thoughtful, long-form interviews gave me a deeper understanding of the people behind big innovations. Back when podcasts were on iPods, Venture Voice introduced me to the startup world. Venture Voice's return is just what 2020 needed. Thanks, JFK. And again, just hit up Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, or wherever you get your podcasts, spread the word. And thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.